Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brand. And this episode, we're discussing SST-90, the Divine Horseman record, Middle of the Night. It's our first full-length Divine Horseman record. I'm looking forward to getting into this. I th I'm pretty sure that this is more of a Brandt band than a Ryan band, but I definitely dig Divine Horseman. And uh, Brandt, we've got a special guest. Yeah, we've got Chris D. on the podcast this week. Whoa, that's a biggie. Yeah. Yeah, big it's, time. It's uh, folks are really going to enjoy the interview because it's like just jam packed with so much LA punk history, right? Yeah, man. Who was it that I was interviewing? Dave Markey. Same kind of guy. Has done so much cool stuff. Played in bands, made movies, shot videos. Chris D. You know, written and directed movies, acted in movies written a zillion books on as like fiction and nonfiction, uh, you know, done poetry played in, I would say two pretty legendary bands and <laughs> I could interview them all day long, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We're pretty lucky, man. It's a long interview though, and it's full of stuff. So people should hang in there and, uh, and check it out. Definitely. But before we get into it, Brent, I, I got a, I got a sneaking suspicion that you've got some spiels for the people. I do, yeah. I'm trying to cram it all in. We, I don't think we've mentioned this yet, Ryan, but after this week with Christy and next week with Julie Christensen, we're going to take a break over the summer. So everyone's going to have plenty of time to listen to these episodes, to get caught up on old ones or re-listen to ones that they want to listen to. So I'm I'm also trying to cram in some spiels. Oh man, it's a spiel crammer. Yep. <laughs> okay, do it. I, I've got some, but I mean, they can wait. So lay it on me. Okay, well, I have a few updates. Okay. Okay, let's see here. We got an email from Steve, who I believe plays in Indian Summer. Oh, right on. Yeah. So it, the label's called Fun With Tape Records. Yep. I'm assuming it's the band's label. It's fwtrecords.com. And here's the update. Indian Summer is doing a record release show. 30 years in the making. And they're doing it August 3rd in Falls Church, Virginia. Oh, and, not in Canada? Not in Shit. Canada. I, I was hoping. Yeah. Anyways. And they're playing with a band called Fallout Shelter. Apparently it's a new band featuring members of Black Market Baby and Scream. Whoa, that's cool. Yeah. I'm a big Scream fan. All eras of Scream. I love them all. Well, then maybe keep an eye out for Fallout Shelter. Yeah, no doubt. So there's your Indian Summer update. That's a good one. Here's a Lawndale update from Dave Childs. Dave Childs from Lawndale sent us an email. He let us know that him, Jack Skelly, Steve Houston, and Philo Van Doon on bass who we've mentioned before. I think we were talking about him recently with Fish Camp, a band, oh, he, yeah. had, a band he had with Chuck Dukowski. He was also in SWA, the Jack Brewer band. He played in The Last for a while, but I don't think we've officially run into any releases yet that, he, that he's been on. But I know we will when we get to SWA later on. Anyways, Dave used to own the uh, a bar in West LA called Liquid Qu Kitty. And he hosted for many year, years there a punk rock barbecue from like 1996 to 2016. Oh, yeah. 
I bet you Lawndale played those. Oh yeah, many times. He's still hosting them, even though the bar I don't think exists anymore. At least he doesn't own it if it does. And he's hosting one this year at a place called Harvell's in Santa Monica on September 15th with Mike Watt and the Missing Men, the Alley Cats, and the Wrinkling Brothers, which features George Hurley on drums. Huh. And he let us know that Beyond Barbecue was the name of a show he hosted at Beyond Baroque in Venice. That's the club that we mentioned in the Lawndale episode that was like a kind of a hub for poets and artists. Yep, right. And they Lawndale played many barbecues there with the Minutemen and Brother A. West. And apparently Steve Houston had built the stage in Baron, Beyond Baroque and like put AstroTurf on top of it, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> that would be durable. Mm-hmm. Except for cigarette butts. Yeah. So there's the, the Lawndale update. If you're in Santa Monica... Around September 15th. Check that out. The Alley Cats, Ryan. That's wild, man. Yeah. Here is a Zoog's Rift update from Craig Unkrich. A few a few things he mentioned after listening to our episode on... What was the episode we just did? The last one? Yeah. Looser Than Clams. Right. Looser Than Clams. Okay. I am not looser than clams. Right, right. <laughs> well we're all looser than clams ryan okay so lobotomy 2 one of the tracks on there i think it's one of the really short ones we were talking about okay is, yeah right is, is the same as Krugerland 2 on idiots on the miniature golf course following hmm. me okay keep going he says i'm not sure why he changed the name but he had just bought some gold at the time he he composed Krugerland. Krugerland, and then, for reasons I cannot recall, changed their names to Lobotomy. I remember him saying that he had to sell off a lot of his gold. And I gold. Love, Krugerland is like a South South African gold coin. Huh. Krugerand, not land. He also said Art Band, the song, was written about Fibonisis. Do you have you ever heard of this band? No. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong wrong. F-I-B-O-N-A-C-C-I-S. Yeah, I looked them up. One guy described them on Discogs as Talking Heads Meet the Residents, and from what I listened to, it, it, that's pretty accurate. It seems like the biggest thing they did was the they played on the soundtrack for this, uh, this kind of B-movie or lower-budget horror movie in the 80s called Terror Vision. The, so- the soundtrack came out on, an, on Enigma. Anyways... He apparently wrote the song Art Band about this band. Uh, Craig says he liked them, but he thought they were snooty. And they were the band that played his first album on KXLU, which is what turned Craig on to Zoogs. Wow, that's random. How do you spell that name? F-I-B-O-N-A-C-C-I-S. Fibonacis. Third, third Zoogs update. We were puzzling about why there was only one track off of Ipecac. Yes. So Craig says Ipecac, the picture disc, came out in 1984. Did you know it was a picture disc? <laughs> no. <laughs> Neither did I. This would be, would have been before SST reissued it, right? Was it on Snout Records? Yeah. Is it Snout? I'm sure it's Snout. Okay. Anyways, he says, why there is only one song from Ipecac on the best of, I have no idea, but it came out long before it. 
No Use, that's the song that, that's on it, was a staple on stage and the only song from the album that he ever performed live again after the two shows to promote the album in 1984. Hmm. There you go. There's your Zoog's Rift update. That's serious, man. Yeah. I love getting stuff like that. Super little turbo nerd factoids that only people like you are really, and me are really into, you know? And hopefully our listeners, too. Okay, here's another micro spiel. I saw on Facebook that Ray Farrell made a post about Raymond Pettibone doing an vocals for another Super Session album. Just putting that out there. One more quick spiel, Ryan. I got the new Decibel magazine yesterday. I keep trying to sell you on this magazine. There is a <laughs> there is an update on the new Child Bite album that Steve Albini is recording. Yes, I want that. I know, I know you like Child Bite. There is an interview with uh, the Austerity Program. Ooh, I got their new record in the mail. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet. And maybe maybe you're not into this, but I think you might be. You know the Hall of Fame that I've mentioned several times? The one where they pick one album and they'll only highlight it if they get to interview every band member? Right. The one in this issue is on A Veil Over the James. Oh, that's cool. Is that an album you're into? You know, Over the James was kind of the last Avail record that I bought. They put out a several after that and a bunch of live ones and stuff. That the real, like the two albums that I really liked by Avail preceded Over the James. They're called, I think they're called Satiate and Dixie. Uh, but Over the James was good. And how, did you read the interview? No, I literally just got this. So I haven't had a chance yet. Okay, I'll borrow it off you. Sure. Those are my spiels. What do you have? I'm going to keep it short and sweet because I want to get to the Christie interview. Only just to mention, I had referenced this several episodes ago. I can't remember which episode, but I mentioned that um, Trinary System had a new right. record coming out. That's Roger Miller, right? Roger Miller, of, of Roger Miller fame, uh, but also, of course, from Mission of Burma and No Man. And then it has uh, Larry Dirsch on drums and then P. Andrew Willis on bass. And it's it's their first LP. I just got it in the mail. It's um, You can get it off of Feeding Tube Records. And Feeding Tube is the one that um, re-released that Watt record. Right. Uh, Spielgusher. Right. And uh, all, I, all I would say about this one is it's good. I really like it, but people should definitely check it out. If you have any sort of, um, like if you like Mission of Burma or Volcano Suns or Customized or Gang of Four or, you know, anything like that, even that Rad Waste album that came out on Happy Squid recently, that kind of Lost Tapes record. Right. If you like that type of vibe, people should check out this Trinary System record. I really liked it. That's it. All right. Let's get into the Divine Horseman. History Lesson, Part 1. All right, Ryan, first of all, we're talking about the album Middle of the Night, but I, I really do consider this one and Devil's River like kind of a, a package. Some of the songs were recorded, I believe, at the same sessions, and in the different art versions of the album, uh, because both of them came out on New Rose, some of the tracks appear on different releases. So, which I'll get to when we go through the individual tracks. Um, and also, I should say, you called this the first 
Divine Horseman full length. I I'm not sure I consider it a full length. It's more of an EP, I would say, a 12 inch EP, wouldn't you say? It's pretty short. It's short, but it's eight tracks. Yeah, I guess I kind of maybe an EP is wrong. I just consider it a companion piece, I guess, to Devil's River. Yep, I hear you. Okay, so here's a few things I pulled off Julie Christensen's site called StoneCupid.com, which is the name of her project, which you'll hear more about next week when in, in our interview with her. This is kind of what it says on there. So they refer to themselves as an American punk slash roots band founded in 1983 by Chris D, formerly of the F Flesh Eaters. Not going to get too much into the Flesh Eaters. We do touch it on it in the interview because you can't really talk about Divine Horsemen without talking about the Flesh Eaters. But we will be getting way more into the Flesh Eaters when we come back after our summer break because we'll be getting right into SST 94, which is the Flesh Eaters' Greatest Hits Destroyed by Fire, which is kind of a compilation of everything, like a greatest hits of everything the Flesh Eaters had done up until the Divine Horsemen, because they split up when the Divine Horsemen formed, and then they reformed way later in the 90s and did more albums on SST, and a new one last year, which is really great. Yep. So they called it a day. Christie formed the Divine Horsemen. Uh, Divine Horsemen was actually a song, on the second Flesh Eaters album, the name of a Divine Horseman song, or a Flesh Eater song, on the album A Minute to Pray, A Second to Die. Uh, the name Divine Horseman comes from a voodoo term for a worshiper who is possessed by a loa during a ceremony, and that person is said to be being ridden by the Divine Horseman. Hmm. So they did an album before this one. It came out on Enigma and Dogmeat Records a little bit later in Australia. Uh, the first one's called Time Stands Still. It was more of an acoustic album. They say it's gothic American murder ballads and folked up rock. And it kind of has a who's who of L.A. post-punk on it. Texacala Jones, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, Kid Congo Powers, John Doe, Dave Alvin, Dan Stewart of Green on Red plays on it. It's way more, uh, less rock. It's more acoustic based than than this stuff. I don't myself personally like it as much as what came next it wasn't to me as fully realized as the stuff we're getting into and then chris d he well he has many books as i mentioned like uh and i've read several of them kind of more of his like crime fiction books and they're they're all really good and some of them you can still get some of them you have to dig a little harder for uh but you can still find them and they're a lot like I don't, you know, I read a lot of books of like, I guess, quote unquote, pulp fiction style books by guys like Jim Thompson and Harry Cruz. And these are the kind of people that Christie often also mentioned, like references in his lyrics as well. Uh, but the books he's written are definitely worth seeking out and checking out. But he also has a great book uh, called A Minute to Pray a Second to Die, which contains a lot of his poetry, some like plays that he wrote and also all of the lyrics to all of his songs which really are a highlight like as as i was listening to this i kept thinking to myself how awesome it would have been if chris d would have done a spoken word album on new alliance records and i'm kind of surprised that he didn't yeah he definitely could have pulled that off yeah so here's from the book that he wrote there's little kind of one page write-ups before uh, the lyrics for each album he says, in late 1983, I had grown sick of the way things were going with the current Flesh Eaters lineup. 
I was getting, getting along with members individually, but whenever we got together for rehearsal, I would often find myself standing on the sidelines while the other three guys bickered. And you'll hear him reference this in the interview as well. We were playing heavy music super loud all the time, and it was exhausting. There were other things I wanted to do musically, so I called it quits. After a month or two, I started actually playing guitar well enough to write music for my songs, as opposed to previously writing the music by just humming or singing the melody and or riffs to the musicians. And around this point, he really started listening to a lot of old country, like, and a lot of his friends like John and Exene are starting, they were starting the Knitters, and he's hanging out with Jeffrey Lee Pierce and Dan Stewart, who was, as I mentioned, was in Green on Red, and they, they're listening to a bunch of country music. And then Dan Stewart's girlfriend at the time, Susie Wren, and her friend Anna Statman, who was uh, an A&R per, person at Slash, as was Chris D., uh, they asked him to produce some songs for the Don't Shoot compilation, uh, which is where he met Julie. He mentions most of this stuff in the interview, so why don't we kick it over to Chris, and then we'll come back and talk about the interview. Okay, we're joined on the podcast today by Chris D. Chris, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Yeah, so we're talking about the Divine Horseman. I'm interested to know, going back to your childhood, where where did you grow up, Chris? I grew up in um, a town, um, I guess it's a medium-sized town that is about 60 miles, I think it's uh, a little bit southeast of L.A., it's, okay. it's over, uh, it's called Riverside. It's right next to San Bernardino, which is the very first town that the Rolling Stones played in live when they came to America. They oh, did wow. a, their, their debut concert at Swing Auditorium in, in San Bernardino. Of mm-hmm. course, I was in, I don't know what I was in. I was probably in, um, I don't know. I must have been in sixth grade or something because, uh, you know, I started high school in 66. So, and they came in 64. So I must have been in, I, I, I would say seventh grade, but we lived in Maryland in seventh okay. grade. And I remember when the Stones came to San Bernardino, I mean, I was really a kid and it was like, I was way too young to go. I mean, it was like, and there was no way my parents were going to take me. But later on, that was a place that I, you know, that, that had multiple concerts, you know, every year. And um, once I got to be about 17, I could, you know, my parents let me go right. by myself and or by with friends. So anyway, I'm digressing already. But uh, yeah, Riverside... Yeah, my dad uh, was a professor at UC Riverside. He was a plant pathologist, which is kind of a a botanist, but more uh, slanted towards study of plant uh, viruses and, uh, you know, plant diseases. And a lot of times they were doing research into viruses that blighted um you know crops not so much regular flora and fauna but uh 
I don't know, crops that would be mass produced like and food supply stuff sold as food yeah. or at the time cigarettes or what, you know, <laughs> tobacco or right. stuff like that. Um, but we lived uh, from the time originally we lived in downtown uh, in downtown neighborhood. That was an older neighborhood, uh, but that was a little, you know, that was seven or eight miles from the university. And when I was in third grade, we moved to a house that was uh, a little more on the outskirts of Riverside at the time. And it was right at the base of Box Springs Mountain. Um, and uh, it was only like a half mile from the university. Okay. So my dad had, you know, like a two minute drive to go to work. Um, so anyway, that's, that's where I grew up. And I went to a Catholic elementary school grades one through eight i didn't go to it you know i i don't know how the canadian school system is set up but in america there's for private schools there's at least uh parochial catholic schools there's grades one through eight and then there's high school nine nine through twelve yeah and i don't know exactly what the how this i mean the school system here in the united states is kind of disintegrating as you probably know but uh, you know, they're trying to keep it alive, thank God, because public education is the way to go, not yeah. not charter schools. Uh, but there's the, the there was the middle school, which I guess they have in a lot of places, a lot of states, and certainly they have it in European countries, uh, you know, junior high yeah. called here in America, and which I guess public ju- junior high is grades eight. Was it seven, eight, nine, or eight, nine, ten? I yeah, can't it varies. It, it, we have it here, and it, it kind of varies. Yeah. yeah. So I never was in a, a middle school. I was in the in elementary school, and then I was in high school. And uh, I went to Catholic elementary school, and my parents sent me to a Catholic boys high school in Riverside, <laughs> um, which was not. Uh, I mean, I I found ways of having fun at the school because I ended up. Uh, falling in with a kind of band of outcast miscreants uh, uh, who hated the majority of the student body, which were jocks. Um, It was, it was, it was weird because there were a number of priests who taught us and, you know, I have a good, good, some good things to say about one or two of them and mostly negative stuff to say about the others. But um but but then the real conundrum was that my mother worked as a secretary at the all girls Catholic high school across town. <laughs> and once I started driving, I would have the car and would drop my mom and my sister who was still in grade school off. And then my brother and I, my br- younger brother who was in high school already, we would, drive to high school and then I'd have to come back and pick my mother and sister up but my mom wouldn't be done till five o'clock so I had to hang around the campus for a couple hours after both the grade school and the, the girls high school got out there and um <laughs> that's a conundrum I, I right. num- <laughs> yeah I, I developed numerous crushes on um inappropriate crushes on 
which were never very, very rarely acted on because of my shyness uh, on girls who, who went to the school. And, uh, of course, everybody knew that my mother was a secretary there, so I, I was not taken seriously at all. So it, it was uh, it was kind of distressing, you know. <laughs> No, my you, introduction to the, the dating scene. So, well, you say you fell in with some outsiders. So, what was, where were you at? Like, I, you're you're so multifaceted in your career. I'm I'm curious about, you know, were you like a music guy? Did were you, did you do acting? Were you writing poetry? What uh, all of it? I, I was doing I was doing all that stuff and yeah. all all of the above and um, you know. I mean, I was even doing satirical cartoons with a couple of friends of mine that would get passed around the classroom. We would do caricatures of our teachers that we despised, and, <laughs> you know, have them saying absurd things or doing characteristic uh, behavior that they would do in class, and they would get passed around. And uh, I used to have a whole notebook of those those high school, you know, I guess they were equivalent of political cartoons, but in the the kind of micro universe of a high school. Uh, and I don't know what happened to those. I had them up until, until seven or eight years ago, and I lost track of where they are now. I may have, um, I had to throw out a lot of stuff, um, so I may have gotten tossed, but uh, so I was doing that. I was writing short stories that I never submitted anywhere. Uh, and they were mostly sci-fi and fantasy horror okay. stuff that I was writing at that point. And uh, I was really in, into music. Uh, I, you know, there was a record store, a pretty hip record store that was about three or four blocks south of the about four blocks from the high school. And um, once I got to be a junior and senior and I was driving and I mean, if you maintained a, a A or B plus average, you were allowed to go off campus uh, during study periods. Oh, yeah. You know, you could take a break and go get a, you know, whatever teenagers do, get in trouble. <laughs> I mean, what we would do is we would drive around the orange groves and smoke pot and listen to our eight track or our four track stereos, or we would go to the record store or we'd go play pinball or go get a, you know, quote unquote milkshake. Uh, so, you know, I have a lot of good memories of high school, but there were also a lot of kind of uh, disturbing memories, not, there wasn't any predatory priest stuff that I encountered ever, although um, there was part of the student body that was virulently bully, you know, jock bullies. Yeah. That, in fact, those jock bullies were really what turned me off completely to any kind of sports, any, especially any kind of competitive sports uh, like football. Um, especially football, but yeah. also basketball and, and baseball to a lesser extent. Uh, so it really killed any interest I had in sports because everybody that I knew that was into sports in, in high school were 
they were bullies and they were generally racist and sexist as well. And, uh, you know, that wasn't just the way, uh, that wasn't the way I was wired yeah. by any means. Um, yeah, anyway. it, it's, uh, it's tough growing up in a smaller town for sure. When you're, uh, you know, an artier type of type of person. Yeah. And it was right. It was right. Uh, you know, I was in high school between 66 and I graduated in, I don't know, it was May, May or June of 1970, and I I, I got to go to Europe on a stu- student tour that was 30 days long uh, um, in the summer, and then I started college at Loyola Marymount University in L.A., um, going to film school uh, in the fall of 1970. I was only, I was fairly young for, you know, I started school early when I was a kid so I was 17 when I started college and and uh then I just kind of ran wild and you know then the first couple months I lost my virginity and dropped acid for the first time and all that kind of (laughs) stuff did you stay in film school yeah 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 I I went through and I in fact I I I stayed through graduate school and got an MFA which is the equivalent of a, of a master's, but, uh, but MFA is master of fine arts. So, you know, it was, the the department was called communication arts, which was film and TV. It wasn't specifically film, but I mean, most of the kids I knew that were in the department were into film. Some were into television. Um, Were you making films while you were there? Yeah, I made uh, I made three sixteen millimeter films when I was there, and I had been making eight millimeter and super eight millimeter films when I was in high school, and also I made uh, a few when I was in college before I got to the sixteen millimeter. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, all the super eight and all those films are gone, so they got lost. Yeah. In the chaos of 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 life and and some of the turbulent passages in my life but um i up until a few years ago i still had the 16 millimeter prints of the three films although i i'm not sure where they are at the moment i'd have to really dig i hope they aren't you know they may be lost in the basement somewhere so and was the goal to get into filmmaking yeah you know the only problem was is that when I graduated finally with my master's, my emphasis was on screenwriting. It wasn't on directing, but I, I did want to be a director, but I wanted to write and direct. I wanted to be, you know, I was already, I mean, the auteur theory was very new at the time, but I was very much a subscriber of that, that the the filmmaker is the author of the film. Uh, and of course, it takes a collaborative effort. You can't do it without other people, and and you've got to do it with other people that come together to realize your vision. So it is very collaborative. But uh, the problem is, I I at the time, uh, and I think even still, I don't have the kind of of personality to go out and bang on doors and knock down doors to get attention and sell myself uh i just didn't have the kind of hustle i mean you really especially back then i mean 
maybe in the early 90s when there was resurgence of independent film because of the video revolution and, and there started to be higher and higher quality video and then digital video and as the 90s progressed uh you know there was a renaissance of indie film because a lot of people were you know and you know it's anathema to some to not shoot on film but it right. really opened up especially once the quality got really good and you could you know got to the point where i mean now you can't even tell the difference a lot of times yeah. stuff that's been shot on on video or film yeah um there's people making movies just, on their phones <laughs> yeah and uh, you know the, the, there were there were, if i had gone to ucla film school uh things might have turned out different or usc because those film schools at the big colleges like ucla and, and usc had kind of a direct conduit into the filmmaking community because there were there were some directors that had already graduated and started making movies. I mean, there were the, you know, I'm not a fan of Spielberg, but I think he's a USC alumni. Coppola was, a, I think Coppola was UCLA. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm wrong. But, you know, there were, there were starting to be filmmakers that had gone to those schools who were getting noticed. And there was a networking of people and I, I think it might have been a po more of a possibility of kind of snaking my way in the back door of the film industry if I'd gone to one of those schools. But I, I felt that Loyola Marymount was such an outlier of, of that. I would have to have a really kind of uh, almost grifter, hustler personality to go out and raise money to right. get films made and to prove my worth. Um, and uh, coincidentally, when I graduated, it was in a grad school. It was uh, spring of 77. And that was all, you know, when the big whole punk rock thing was really yeah. mushrooming. It, it, it really started in England in 76. But I, I had always, you know, that's when they started calling it punk. But for me, it really started in the late sixties. I mean, there are bands to me like Steppenwolf in the late sixties and, and the Stooges in 69, uh, MC five in 68, 69. And, um, you know, bands like that, that, you know, even the doors, uh, that had that spirit of, of, uh, punk, uh, you know, even even some early heavy metal bands. I mean, I was a big fan. Uh, I, I don't like them so much now, but I still like the first three or four albums of Led Zeppelin and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. Yep. Although I, a lot of it's kind of a little too uh, bloated and overblown for me now, but some of the stuff I still like. And uh, I always like to throw uh, the dictators you know, on that list. The dictators, you know, I never. Uh, the dictators were a little too jokey for me. Um, I, I, uh, but I loved the Ramones when they came out. I mean, I guess that was was that seventy six. I can't remember. But also with when when uh, Bowie. I mean, Bowie to me was like that was a Ziggy Stardust period, and through Ziggy Stardust, seeing him in nineteen seventy two at his first L A. concerts at the Santa Monica Civic. Uh, 
I'd already got the Ziggy Stardust album, which I loved. And I, I went out and got Hunky Dory and I got Man Who Sold the World. Man Who Sold the World, which is a really kind of proto-punk metal record. You know, and then continued through Aladdin Sane and especially Diamond Dogs, which is probably his most punk yeah. kind of record, at least the first side. And then also the New York Dolls, which really inspired all kinds of people, especially Sex Pistols. So yeah. um, New York Dolls and I think 72 were big favorites. Uh, well, all that stuff to me was, you know, in retrospect, I mean, I guess they call it proto-punk. I, I really hate I, I've hate I've come to really hate the la, the label punk or really any kind of musical genre label. Uh, I guess it's appropriate for certain things that are strictly, you know, it's very obvious what's classical music and what's jazz music right. and you know certain kinds of R and B. You know, there's different kinds of soul. There's Memphis soul and. Muscle Shoals and, uh, you know, the, the the northern version of Soul that came out of Motown and stuff like that. But, um, you know, and that really happened with, it ended up happening with punk, too, where there became all these different factions of punk and, and you know, the really hardcore thrash punk and and the original kind of punk that was the first, you know, so-called punk in the wave of the British uh, influences. Well, let, let's talk about that in. for a minute, Chris, because you were, yeah. I, I'm assuming you knew a lot of the people already that ended up forming bands in what's generally considered like the well, first well, wave well, of that's, LA that's, punk. Yeah, that's true, because 77, I was starting to go to a poetry workshop in Venice. My first wife, Bonnie, and I, in, uh, I think it was 76, we put out a, a poetry anthology which we'd done ourselves mm -hmm. i i had typeset it down at beyond baroque which is still around they're they're in a different building about a half mile from where they were then but uh they're still around and they're a, they're a, a literary arts foundation yeah, it's fun um, it's funny you mentioned that we actually interviewed rick lawndale last week and i believe that's where he met jack skelly is what he told us at at beyond baroque yeah there were a lot of poets uh you know people who were became famous i mean and that's how i met uh john doe and xine is they i don't remember xine specifically going to venice poetry workshop but that's where i first saw john john doe and when in 76 i uh typeset that poetry anthology that my wife first wife bonnie and i did it was called Bongo Chalice. Uh, we, I typeset it down at Beyond Baroque, and the person who was working there at the time was Xine, and she showed me, first time I met her, she showed me how to use a typesetting machine. I, and, and that was before John and her were together as a couple. They may have known each other, but they, they hadn't come together as a couple or as a, you know, collaborating writers. And um, so, you know, a year or so later, when I started going to the mask and I was split up from my first wife. Um, and also in that, that poetry anthology, I had, I had solicited Patty Smith to use a couple of her poems in it, which she graciously allowed us to do. Oh, wow. Um, and unfortunately I haven't 
you know, and kept in any contact with her. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I, I, there's a couple degrees of separation in a lot of places with her, but I, you know, I don't even know if she knows I exist. But, um, uh, I was a huge Patty Smith fan, which was 75, 76 when horses came out. And I, I saw her the first time she came to LA before horses, like when she did the whiskey and okay. she just had Richard soul, her piano player and Lenny Kay on guitar. Right. And she was doing his factory and Hey Joe, those, those her single. And I went back stage and met her and, you know, and, um, but I was, I was, I felt like still a kid compared <laughs> to her. And um, I was in total awe of her, but uh, you know. And then, then uh, as things kept coming together in the next year, uh, after my wife and I had split up, I was living in Venice actually, and uh, I was still going to the poetry workshop occasionally. I, I never read any of my stuff. I never felt confident enough. Mm-hmm. Um, my first wife Bonnie and I had been kind of in more of a South Bay poetry scene. And we'd, we'd read at the Alley Cat Cafe, which was um, in Hermosa Beach, which was literally right around the corner from this recording studio where Black Flagged and Spot recorded all that initial SST right. stuff. And it was, it was about, you know, where we lived was about a quarter mile from that church that Greg Ginn and all those guys lived in. And, and, you know, when Greg Ginn still had his electronics business, which was called coincidentally SST, which is how the record company got the name. But anyway, uh, to get back to Venice and going to the poetry workshop, I found an issue of Slash, the very first issue. I think it was at a bookstore called Papa Box, which is long gone which was category, uh, uh, caddy corner to a repertory film theater called the New Art, which uh, is in West LA, kind of borderline Santa Monica, West LA. And um, I, I, I went to the New Art regularly because there was still a revival house. There, there's still an indie film house, but they, they have week-long engagements of indie films. Back then, they used to be a regular repertory theater where they have, you know, different double features of older movies and newer movies every day or two. Um, And there was the Venice Fox down in Venice. So I was going to those movie theaters a lot, and I was going to bookstores a lot. And when I found that issue of Slash, uh, the very first issue at Papa Box Newsstand, I was really... Uh, blown away and I just thought oh I gotta send some of the uh, some of my poetry to these guys which was really chaotic surrealist kind of aggressive poetry Uh, and I thought it's probably a long shot these guys will do poetry but I'm going to send them the stuff anyway Uh, to my surprise um, Philomena who was Chick Boy's you know Claude Bessie's partner they they were editors of, of the mag Philomena sent me a really nice letter back saying that they really love my poetry, but they didn't do poetry. And would I like to, you know, 
do some record reviews. And uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to. And so I, I, uh, in, I think the third issue, I had my first record be, which was uh, Iggy and the Stooges, I Got a Right, <laughs> uh, which was an independent single by then. I bet you gave that a good review. (laughs) Yeah, I gave it a rave review. And that's the only time I ever signed under under my full name, Chris Desjardins. By the fourth issue, I was using Chris D. And part of the Chris D stemmed from, uh, for the first, or no, the last six months of 1977, when I was already writing for Slash. And um, I was also trying to pull together the first you know, incarnation of the flesh eaters. I was the first six or last six months of 1977. I was teaching English at a private high school in um, Westchester, which was, that's kind of LAX neighborhood, you know, the airport neighborhood. And it straddles actually Loyola Marymount's in Westchester. And then Inglewood is just further East. And Inglewood was like starting to get into I don't want to say inner city neighborhood, but it was mostly African-American. And, you know, if, if, if you were, if you were white, you had to be somewhat circumspect going there at night. It was okay. I would go to movie, the movies that in Inglewood uh, all the time for matinees, like if a horror movie was playing in Inglewood or something right. and didn't, you know, feel any uh, fear, but, you know, they were still, uh and there still are, like, you know, racial tensions everywhere. And, of course, that's only been exacerbated by the government trying to keep people divided so they can't join together to unify. But um, I started going to a mask all the time after I read Slash, because that's how I found out about the mask. I was teaching high school during the daytime, and the Chris D came along because none of the kids could pronounce my last name, Desjardins. I thought, what the fuck? I'm just going <laughs> to just call me Mr. D. Um, okay. Like and the Stone so <laughs> did, Yeah. So that's how Chris D was born. Uh, you know, unfortunately now there's another Chris D who's a rapper, I guess. Because uh, oh. sometimes when I do a Chris D search on the internet or on YouTube, I'll come up with him before I'll come up with my stuff, um, which bugs me, but you know, I guess everybody has the right, the right to use their last name as an initial or their, an initial for their last name. So anyway, I saw X at the mask uh, when I started going and I go, Oh my God, I know those guys, John and Xine. I mean, I, I just knew them as acquaintances, but I was very excited to see them and I was very excited to see how good they were. And I was going, God, I love these guys. These guys are great. And um, because they were very melodic, but they were still, they had a really gritty edge and they were definitely punk. And I thought, wow, this is so different um, than a lot of the kind of more noisy punk that was going on, which actually at the beginning, the Flesh Eaters were kind of more uh, abrasive punk than than X. And um, Now, had you considered doing music? At, at this point or was it like a revelation for you well, in the sense I, had, that... I had wanted to do music since I was in high school and I actually tried to put a band together when I was in high school and uh, we, I put a band together for it only lasted about I don't know 
two, three, four weeks right. uh, in high school because we were going to form a band to do a battle. They used to have Battle of the Bands right. type <laughs> showcases um, where where either new bands or old bands would all get together and a whole, like, you know, 20 bands would play three or four songs each and then, you know, there would somebody, they would pick the top three or the top one or whatever. So we had gotten together to do one of those and we didn't get beyond, you know, coming up with a couple songs. I wrote one original song, first original song I ever did, which I, I wish I still had the lyrics. <laughs> it was a song called one eyed woman. And, um, it, it was very much in kind of a Standell Stooges kind of, uh, hybrid, you know, type sound. And, uh, and, I think my voice is a little too abrasive for even the guys that are in the band with me. And and they just kind of, it kind of disintegrated out of apathy. I still wanted to do it, but everybody else was kind of, you know, and I think part of it was people just, even the guys I was playing with, they couldn't really deal with my singing. So, um, and I have to remind you that, that the high school I went to, I don't know about public high schools, but the Catholic boys high school I went to, my friends and I were in the minority of right. people who like Stephen, <laughs> Stephen Wolf and Led Zeppelin and and God forbid, God forbid, MC5 or the Stooges. Uh, but even like ten years after Led Zeppelin's Stephen Wolf, that was too out there. Um, even some of the Rolling Stone stuff. If you liked the Beatles, that was cool. Or if you liked the Beach Boys, or if you liked. I don't know, more poppy kind of rock, like Love and Spoonful or stuff like that. But the harder stuff, uh, harder, gritty edge stuff, uh, you know, some of the bands would later be called heavy metal or punk. There were kind of those ideas were forming in rock. then. even bands like Jefferson Airplane, which were really politically aggressive and had a, even though they had kind of the X type, male female vocal interplay they still had a hard edge and they were you know up against the wall motherfuckers kind of attitude right. those were not the kind of bands that were listened to in my high school <laughs> for sure so uh you know from the time i was in high school i really liked a lot of black music too i loved blues i loved talon wolf and uh john lee hooker I'd already heard some of that stuff by the time I was 17, yeah, 18 that, years old. And those influences so definite, was, definitely come through in the Flesh Eaters, for sure. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, there was, there, there was always that basis. I was a big fan of Captain Beefheart, especially Safe as Milk. Right. And that initial lineup of the Flesh Eaters in 77, we did, um, you know, the few months that that lineup was together, which had Tito LaRiva, who was simultaneously doing the plugs. Uh, uh, we did a cover of Captain Beefheart's Plastic Factory from from Safe as Milk, okay. um, which is very, you know, blues rock oriented. And it had Ry Cooter right. just doing phenomenal, you know, ripping guitar on that record. Um, seeing, seeing John and X in, in X at the mask prompted me to go up to them and introduce myself again. And my girlfriend and I at the time, uh, we started going over to X rehearsals and we became very, you know, 
my girlfriend and I became very friendly with John and Exine. We started to hang out with them. We were like into the same kind of literary influences that they were. We liked a lot of the same old movies. We were into film noir and stuff like that. So, you know, and we started to go to movies together and dinner together and, you know, uh, sometimes early morning breakfast and, um, and I, we'd go to the rehearsals a lot to watch them play, you know, um, and uh, that's how I became friends with those guys. And later on, when John and Exine and my girlfriend at the time, Judith, and I went down to a party in Downey in 1980, and it was the Blasters house. That's when I met Dave Alvin and the okay. Blasters. And yeah. I was astonished that Dave Alvin loved the first Flesh Eaters album, No Questions Asked. <laughs> And you know he, I don't know if he loved it so much for the music, but he loved the lyrics, and, and they were something that he hadn't really seen in punk rock. But he, he was very much into a lot of punk too, even though he was playing more of, you know, what's now be called, you know, called Americana. Or, I mean, they got they got looped in with the rockabilly crowd too, which to me they were they did a few rockabilly songs, but they were always more of a rhythm and blues kind of rock band um although they, they played the songs like punks did i mean their stuff was pretty frenetic the way they played their music and uh they certainly didn't dress like punk rockers but they never they had, had an upright bassist ever uh, that i'm aware of no no they never did uh that i remember uh you know, and they they were very influenced by the blues, and they were Dave and Phil were Phil, Dave and Phil Alvin were both, uh, you know, and Gene Taylor, who was in the band, band at the time, was their piano player. Uh, you know, got to know Lee Allen, who was a famous saxophonist who did a lot of stuff on uh, on sixties R and B records. He, he he became a sax player in their band for a while. Yeah. along with Steve Berlin and um and they were friends with Big Joe Turner and and Dave's mom became friends with Big Joe Turner. Big Joe Turner came to the funeral of Dave's mom when she died of cancer in mm. I don't know, it was maybe 1981 or 82. Um that was shortly before Big Joe Turner died. And uh so there was that kind of intersection with the Blasters and really authentic LA-based blues community, like African American blues, right? Um, and there was a love of of that also. Uh, I remember John and Exine, Judith and I, Keith Morris, and Jeffrey Lee Pierce. We all went down to see the Cajun blues guy Clifton Chenier, who was one of the only guys that could get away with playing an accordion in our eyes, you know, and. Um, he was awesome, and we we went down to Watts to see him. At a, we were the only white people at this um, Clifton Chenier concert at Verbum Gay High School, which is a a Catholic high school down in Watts. And it was it was we just had a it was one of the, my most favorite concerts I've ever seen in my life. Had so much fun, yeah. and uh, and everybody was dancing, and nobody gave gave us. Uh, shit about being there because we were white or anything it was just really beautiful uh feeling um but that was a kind of like melting pot that that kind of fo 
fomented all that that stuff right then for us, uh, yeah. as well as the the punk rock stuff that was happening at the Mask and in Hollywood, and then it's Flash Flash Magazine too, which I was really involved in. Um, I hate to breeze through the the Flesh Eaters, Chris, and I'd love to have you back on sometime to really dive into that, but. I'd like to sure. I'd like to jump ahead to the Divine Horseman, if that's okay. Okay. Yeah. So when you do the Time Stands Still record, as the Divine Horseman, it's, I guess it's a co-credit Christie slash Divine Horseman. Do you consider yeah. do you consider that like a Divine Horseman album, or is it more of a solo? Well, no, I, I consider it Divine Horse the first Divine Horseman album. Uh, it was it was kind of uh i wasn't really sure where i was going to go uh with forming a band doing that material right. but as you know timestone still has got a uh you know i don't know what's got about 20 collaborators on yeah. the record yeah. and there's different musicians who play different things there's you know john doe plays acoustic guitar and a couple songs dave alvin plays electric guitar and Two or three songs. Uh, Dan Stewart from Green Odd Red plays acoustic guitar and a couple songs. Uh, Slim Evans from Rank and File plays drums on a couple songs. Uh, Bill Bateman, of all people, who's the bla- was the Blasters drummer and the Flesh Eaters drummer on the Minute to Pray album. He Bill doesn't play drums on the record, but he plays acoustic guitar in <laughs> a few songs, which is the only time I know of. I, I made. Mean, be totally ignorant of other stuff that Bill's done on guitar, but to my knowledge, that's the only time I've ever heard of Bill playing guitar. Right. Um, and I had Carrie McBride, who was in the band the Juju Hound. She played acoustic guitar and some of the stuff. I had Jeffrey Lee Pierce uh, playing guitar in a couple songs, uh, and uh, Chris Kakavas, most really important contribution, playing yeah. piano on three or four songs. Um, He's played with everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, most importantly, Julie Christensen, who I got to do backup vocals on, um, on a lot of the songs. And she, she did a kind of a duet with me on past all dishonor mm-hmm. and Frankie silver, those two songs. And then she played back, uh, sang backup on the other stuff. And, just meeting her, I, I met her while I was producing a session shortly before that Time Stand Still record came together. And um, I was producing a song for Top Jimmy called, uh, he was doing a cover of a Fair and Young song um, called Hello Walls. Okay, yep. And Julie was there doing backup vocals. Um, and that was the first time I met her. And I was just totally like mesmerized by her. And um, I was determined in my, the recesses of my head, I didn't broadcast this to people, but I thought, I'm going to get to know her and I'm going to, she's going to become my girlfriend. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to do music with this woman. Yeah. Um, so, um, it was love at first sight kind of thing. And, yeah. and, um, and then it just, you know, she was really enthusiastic about collaborating with me on time stand still. She was a little more reluctant in getting into a relationship with me, but 
I, I, I kept coming to see her do her, um, she was doing like another, um, thing. Uh, God, I can't remember. She's going to kill me. I can't remember <laughs> the name of her. She had a, 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 a combo that was a jazz, uh, a swing, more of a swing music combo okay. that was doing like, you know, forties, uh, kind of, uh, swing music and bebop and doing songs like boogie woogie bugle boy from company B and, you know, those kind of songs that were popular in the late forties, you know, among, uh, white R and B swing bands, the kind of things you would see in, you know, uh, wartime musical right. set in Hollywood or something. Um, but they had a piano player, uh, Henry Butler, who was actually very, was pretty famous, at least in the underground of uh, Los Angeles R&B. He's he's a blind African American uh, piano player who was he was a good decade older than everybody else. Okay. And then um, Julie had a friend of hers, Terry, who played an upright bass, and that was about it. And then she had a uh, a friend of hers, I, I can't remember her friend's name, a female who her and Julie would sing these songs and they would dress up in, you know, vintage 40s type dresses. And they played at this club on Melrose. And I used to go see them regularly, like every week. And, um, and I would always talk to Julie after the show and I kind of courted her you know, I wasn't overly aggressive, and I think she kind of was a little bit intimidated by me, um, so in, being so interested in her. And she right. was already separated and getting a divorce from her first husband, so it was kind of an awkward time for her. And um, but anyway, the, the, she finally got into the idea of of being in a relationship as well as doing the music together, and. Once we were in a relationship, it really, the music really took off too. And I decided, you know, we were going to do a band together. And I, I had already broken up um, that um, lineup of the Flesh Eaters that had done the third and fourth album, Forever Came Today, and um, Hard Road to Follow. Right. Uh, and part of it was just because the music was getting so loud and frenetic and it was, we were catering so much to, um, this was like 1983. So we were, we were playing a lot of gigs. We were still playing gigs with bands like uh, X and even the Cramps, but we were also playing gigs with Black Flag and right. the Minutemen and, some some bands that might be considered hardcore. Did you and Julie have a conversation about what kind of direction you wanted to go in musically? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we we. Uh, I purposely wanted to go. You know, I got so sick of playing super loud music because we had a guitar player who was really good, very uh, imaginative, but he was one of those guys the amp always had to be at 11, right. you know, he never turned down. And, and also he and the bass player and the drummer who I individually, I got along with all of them. 
when we got together in rehearsal, we would smoke a lot of pot. Our drummer at the time, Chris, had a connection with bikers for speed, and we would snort speed sometimes. And um, it would just get really aggro, you know. It would people the, the three of them would get in arguments with each other right. about either the music we were playing or some other ego-driven thing. And uh, I'd be standing there kind of waiting for them to finish <laughs> their aggressiveness towards each other. And then we'd get into music again. But the, the music was always so loud. There wasn't as much dynamics as I wanted. Like we'd had more dynamics on Forever Came Today than we did on Hard Road. Right. And then I was going more over the top, too, with my singing. I was drinking a lot more. I was drunk a lot when I was singing. And um, I wasn't realizing nuances in my singing. And, um, you know, some of the, the singing on Hard Road to Follow, uh, I wish, you know, some of it is fine. And I'm happy with it still. There's other passages here and there on that fourth album where I wish I'd gone and done them over before I finished the record because I had been drinking too much when I when I did the the final vocals. Um, no, but I didn't have that. I didn't have that perspective when I was recording the record, and so the record that last Fletch Eater record then had been out about a year when I decided to break the band up because I just got sick of the aggravation. And, uh, I remained on good terms with all those guys. In fact, Robin from that band um, ended up being in Divine Horseman and he was the one I got along with the best. And, okay. and uh, he also had a lot of other musical influences, uh, you know, from, you know, he'd grown up in Europe until he was 14 because he's, you know, was born in um, Belgium. His father was an American diplomat, I think, and his mother uh, was French and they lived in Belgium and France when up until he was 14. Anyway, he had much more of a, a, a global take on pop music and, um, was more kind of in tune with what I wanted to do. So he came along on the one horseman with Julie and I started the band. And um, Let's talk about some of the other members you, you recruited. How, how did you get hooked up with Rex Roberts? Did you know him Rex from the Kingbees? And I, I can't remember exactly, you know, I don't even, I think I saw the Kingbees once and I knew Rex was a good drummer. Uh, they did kind of a, I think they get kind of a, a hybrid rockabilly tinged uh, roots. Yeah, they're not, they're not so different influence. from the Blasters, maybe. Yeah, but they were a trio, yeah. if I remember correctly. And um, there was Jamie James, who was the lead guy, uh, guitar player and singer. And there was Michael Rummins, who was the bass player. And then there was Rex. And... Uh, I don't remember if it was my idea or somebody else. Uh, but when Rex came in and tried out for the band, it was just immediate that he was the guy. Because yeah. he understood dynamics really well and um, was still had a very aggressive style that was like punk, 
but it was more um, nuanced and was capable of, you know, that kind of punk energy, but still, you know. Yeah. Uh, we could play more melodic stuff. We could play slower stuff. We could play more, uh, you know, softer sounding stuff as well as, you know. And that's the way the the band kind of evolved from time to stand still, which is almost all acoustic record. There's some electric stuff on there, some lead guitar and stuff that's electric. Um, but there's a lot of acoustic guitar on it. Then the next album, Devil's River, uh, was definitely evolved into more electric band. Um, and yeah, the guitarists you know, on this, of, Cam and Wayne. How did you? How did you? Did you know those guys already? Um, uh, you know, I don't remember how how Wayne came in. If he came in through an ad or or uh, you know, because we sometimes bands advertised in. Um, there was a a uh, predecessor to Craigslist uh, called the Recycler, and right. it didn't have sex ads like Craigslist had. But uh, the Recycler was a kind of throwaway newspaper that would came out every week, and it would have all kinds of things like cars for sale, appliances for sale. Uh, want ads, uh, you know, stuff for jobs, uh, uh, job listings. It would have musicians who were looking for gigs. It had bands that were looking for musicians to be in the band. And we we put a few ads in Recycler. I, I did that for the lineup with the Flesh Eaters after Minute to Pray. That's okay. how I met Robin and... and um, might have been how I met Chris Wall also from those Flesh Eater Labs. But anyway, um, I'm not really sure how Wayne came in because as it turns out, we ended up having a lot of people, at least as acquaintances in common. Wayne was very good friends with Peter Andrus, who ended up being uh, the guitarist on all the Snake Handler stuff okay. uh, the last divine horseman and also on the handful of sand ep which came out after the band broke up he was on both those peter was on both those records um and then wayne was on um you know devil's river in the middle of the night um we also had uh cam king he was a friend of julie's who had been he had his own band the explosives and they had also backed up Rocky Erickson for right. a period of time. So Cam King, who's from Texas, from Austin, was living out here in L.A. briefly. And he was in the band for that Devil's River. And, you know, he appears on one or two songs on the middle of the night record. Um, Did you know you wanted two but, guitarists? Was that part of the plan? Um, we, we, we did, um, you know because we wanted a fuller guitar stand where one could be kind of more aggressive right. and another one kind of more melodic. Um, I think that's kind of, you know, might've, you know, I'm, I, I might even be saying this in retrospect and, and I don't know if it was a conscious decision to make that distinction at the time, but that's certainly the way it sounds now. Yeah. Cam definitely did some of the more 
melodic and stylized stuff at the time. Although the Wayne was really versatile and certainly capable of doing that. But Wayne had the more aggressive rock or, or punk kind of guitar parts. Um, the band started to gravitate gradually to be more electric. And then the last two records with Peter were very electric. Um, okay. And then Jim Hawkinson, so, was he, now was he like a member of the band or did, did was he just playing on no, these sessions? No, he wasn't somebody, I don't recall, I don't think he ever played with us live, but he, I brought him in uh, to play on uh, a few songs. I think Julie brought him in. Okay. I think she knew him. Did you um, have a live organ player? No, no, we never had a, a live piano or, or organ player on stage okay it was always just um you know and once once peter got in the band i mean the great thing about peter and this isn't to disrespect wayne or cam king but the great thing about peter who, who actually peter got in the band because wayne was a friend of his and wayne when wayne left after devil's river in middle of the night a lot of the middle of the night stuff was recorded at the same time as Devil's River. Yeah, so that's what I assumed. That, that yeah. And um I think we had gone back in and recorded Voodoo Idol uh separately because um which was the cramps cover because our we, we had a French label at the time. I I that was the nice thing about Dwayne Horseman is that it was a more uh accessible band more um i don't know what i don't want to say commercial because we still weren't as commercial as certainly the big record companies wanted but we did attract attention from new rose who put out the time still album and they the new rose put out all the divine horseman stuff in europe and they subsequently put out a couple of flesh eaters things too over there when wayne um decided to leave um, after the Devil's River mid middle of the night sessions, and after we had done the Voodoo Idol song, I I know where I was going with the New Rose connection. Voodoo Voodoo Idol, uh, the Cramps, uh, their their European label was New Rose. Okay. So New Rose wanted to do a compilation of other bands that were on their label, each of those bands covering a Cramps song. Oh, so the one. The one we picked was Voodoo Idol. Gotcha. And that one appeared on the American edition of Middle of the Night, and uh, which had eight songs on it. And then the French version of Middle of the Night only had six songs. Okay. And it didn't include it didn't include Voodoo Idol on their French release of Middle of the Night. It it, it put it on their the, the French Cramps compilation, um, you know, covers other bands doing Cramps songs. So that's how they use that song. But that's why Voodoo Idol came into being. Do it's you like, recall, uh, Chris, how you ended up on SST? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Well, see, I knew, I knew, um, I knew Greg, and I knew the other Black Flag guys, Chuck Tukowski, because I was good friends with Keith Morris, and Keith Morris used to come see the Flesh Eaters all the time. Okay. And he was just a kid. This was before he even got into a band. 
and you know he was barely out of his teens and he would come to the mass he would come to shows at Larchmont Hall and Basie's Hall and all these other independent one-off venues that had punk shows and he would come and he always have a beer in his hand he'd always like be very uh, in your face uh, telling us these anecdotes or about how great we were as a band and he did this with Claude Bessie too, Kickboy from Slash. So we we all knew Keith, and he did it with Giant Xing. He did it with Randy from the Alicats, and he did it with Darby from the Germs. And he he was always in your face, and he was always pretty drunk. <laughs> this is when you know we first got to know him. We all thought, oh God, who is this crazy kid from the South Bay? Um, <laughs> but we all loved him because he was so funny. I mean, he was one of the funniest guys, and he always had this these this funny take on shit, you know, we all respected his sense of humor, his intelligence. And even though he was drunk out of his mind half the time (laughs) when we see him. So when I was still writing for Slash, he gave me a um, cassette of the first Black Flag single, but they weren't called Black Flag yet. They were called Panic. They hadn't changed their name to Black Flag. Right. And I played it. And I was just blown away. And I played it for Claude. We were like, oh, my God, <laughs> Keith did this stuff. You know, we were like, this is so this is like Godhead. The first that first Black Flag single. Right. You know, that EP. Nervous Breakdown. Yeah. yeah. And I, I wanted to do I had my independent label Upsetter that was kind of on again, off again, if I couldn't get my records out through another indie label um, like Danger House or Slash or Frontier right. or something like that. I would just do, I decided just, just to do it myself. Right. And that was Upsetter. And um, the one time I was going to do another artist was the first Black Flag record. And I was in talks with Greg and, and the rest of the band and Keith. And they were into the idea that the SST records hadn't started yet. Okay. Um, beyond that first single and um we were in agreement that we were going to do that and then they were starting to work on stuff and they had material and i didn't even know but they recorded you know when when that double album everything is black came out and there was that whole side with keith as a vocalist and that would have been part of the upsetter records black flag album at least as far as i know um but i didn't even know they'd recorded that at the time and uh what ended up happening was there was kind of a thing where keith and greg uh had disagreements and i think he remained friends with everybody but keith got kicked out of the band um and i don't know if it was because of an attitude thing or his his choice of how he wanted to do the material uh he talks about it in his My Damage book. But yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but anyway, so I knew Greg from that period, um, Greg Gann. And once SST had been around for a little while, I mean, they were, they were starting to do well by nineteen, the end of 1985, early 1986, when I went to him and, and I said, look, you know, this may be a long shot. I don't know if this is your cup of tea but we've got this album um, Devil's River that we want to want to put out. And 
I didn't want to go with Enigma again because they'd, uh, even though they love Time Stand Still, they really kind of botched the distribution of it. And um, I saw SST was really good at that and really good at promoting stuff. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go. I know Greg. I know the Mugger was still at the label also. Okay. Yeah. And I knew Joe Carducci, who was still at the label. And he was good friends with my friend Byron Cawley. So I... Uh, when I went to them and they, they were, you know, like only a four or five people operation and Chuck Tukowski was there. Of course, Chuck was a fan uh, of, of my stuff too. And, and they all liked the flesh eaters and we played with black flag as the flesh eaters uh, a couple, at least, at least once, I think maybe twice. I, I don't, I can't remember if it was a lineup. I don't think Henry Rollins was in the band yet. It might've been the lineup with Ron Ray's. Okay. Um, or does maybe um, probably does Kadena actually, because um, I know the Ron Ray's lineup wasn't very long lived either. Des Kadena was in the band though for at least a year or two. Um, so anyway, I, I went to Greg and and Greg and Mugger and Chuck loved the the Vine Huntsman record and and said yeah we'll put this out and so they you know that's how I got got involved with them. And I was shocked as anybody, but you know, later they started doing not just hardcore stuff. They were doing, you know, when the meat puppets got into their, you know, more psychedelic country rock stuff. And, um, you know, they were still doing stuff on SST and, um, Sonic Youth was a really noisy band, but when they came in on, on SST, it wasn't really hardcore thrash either though. It was like, you know, they, so SST really wasn't a specifically hardcore label, although they were kind of lumped in with that. For sure. But they had a lot of eclectic stuff on their on their label. So the two records we're talking about, Devil's River and Middle of the mm-hmm. Night, chronologically, as far as the catalog numbers go, are back to back to back. Did they come out close together? Do you know? They both came out in 1986. I, I can't remember exactly the time of year, but Devil's River came out. We were um, starting to do, we'd already done a very short tour before Devil's River in 1985. We'd done a short little Southwestern tour. Like, you know, we did LA, San Diego, Tucson, Phoenix, uh, Dallas, Austin, and, uh, Dallas, Austin, and Houston. Were you touring with another band? Or were we touring with another band? No. Yeah. No. No, we no. were on our own. And okay. we had Matt Lee on the album. I, I mean, on the, the, the live lineup as a guitar player. He was in between Time Stand Still and Devil's River before we got Wayne. And Matt Lee, we were getting ready to record an album with him, and we we recorded seven songs with him that ended up being kind of demos, but I didn't feel like seven songs was long enough, and he abruptly decided to leave. He really kind of left us in the lurch at the last minute. We'd already gone and done a short tour with him. We'd recorded versions of My Sin, uh, Devil's River, uh, Mother's Worry, Tenderest Kiss, uh, Little Sister, and 
and if only I could. Uh, I think Tears Fall Away also. What is that? Seven songs? And he just abruptly decided to go. He was in another band called the D.I.s, which were more like good time party punk rock uh, or more. It was even really, I don't know if they're really, really punk, but Axel from the Gears was the lead singer. I, I, I knew some of the other the other guys, um, you know, the, anyway, the DIs got, got mad. He, he wanted, he could, I think kind of his reasoning was he felt more like, you know, DIs had kind of a boys club, you know, and they were also probably more fun to play with because they drank a lot more. And they also, they were kind of like in it to get the chicks, you know, I, my apologies to any DIs who are hearing this, but, <laughs> but um, you know, because we play, Divine Horseman actually ended up playing with them on some gigs and stuff. Okay. Uh, and I don't have any bad feelings toward them, but at the time I was pissed because he, he, he did it without any notice whatsoever. And we were in the midst of trying to get these, you know, we were building up these recordings slowly to, to do an album with him. And they were really great recordings. And, I, and since they, I've, I've released them in bits and pieces on, you know, there are, some of them are extra tracks on the Timestand Still CD. Oh, okay. It came out through, it came out through Atavistic in um, uh, 2005. And right. um, If Only I Could um, ended up on, as an extra track on the cassette of um, Devil's River. And it's also on the vinyl of Middle of the Night and Little Sister, uh, the long electric version um, with Matt is on the Middle of the Night. Trying to think if there's something else we played with with Matt that was on Middle of the Night or on Devil's River. I think that was it for the time being. Um, But later I I put out a lot of that stuff. Uh, There was a a seven inch limited edition 45 that came out of the the versions of my sin and devil's river that Matt played on right. on shock shock records out of England. And, um, it was a limited, you know, edition of a th- thousand pieces or something. And now after these come out, do you do more touring? Well, we I can't I don't think we did any touring in nineteen eighty six. Um we were kinda of gearing up for that, but it was kind of a struggle because um Julie and I were doing specifically only music, but some of the other people had jobs and Rex had a job. Robin was kind of wrapped up. He was helping to run um Holly Gully Studios. He was kind of the second guy you know under the owner at holy gully studios which was a rehearsal studio where we always rehearsed and it was a, a studio that the fletching is rehearsed at it was also a rehearsal studio that the di's rehearsed concrete blonde rehearsed there uh oh god i don't know so, so many la bands um candy king um Boy, uh, blood on the saddle. Um, 
lot of other, you know, local, local Hollywood, especially Hollywood bands. So it, it was, it was, we were kind of gearing up to go on tour in 87. So it really kind of, it really threw us for a loop when Wayne left the band and it took us for a while to come up with Peter. We went through another guitar player. Uh, there was a guy named Marshall. I can't even remember his last name. He ended up joining um, the Crusados, which was Tito's other, you know, band after the plugs. Right. But Marshall was only in the band for two or three months. He didn't even do any recording with us. He only did about three gigs with us. So Wayne might have still been in the band when we had Marshall. Uh, but then when both Marshall and Wayne were gone, we were auditioning other people. We auditioned Don Kirk, who'd been in on the Forever Came Today and Hard Road to Follow uh, Flesh Eaters albums. But his, his style was just too abrasive and kind of, uh, you know, didn't have enough dynamics. And um, I felt really bad because I knew he wanted to do it. And uh, but I just had to say, say no, because I didn't think it was going to work with them. Um, but it was really great because uh, Wayne suggested Peter. And Peter was pretty young. I mean, he was like, I think Peter was only like 20 or 21 at the time. He was about 10 years younger than the rest of us. And, um, you know, because we were like in our late 20s. Um, uh, we were like 29 or 30, I think. Julie might have, Julie's about two or three years younger than me. So she, she might have still been in her late 20s. I think I was 30, 31. Rex was about the same age as me. Robin was like around the same age as me. But when Peter came in, he just blew us away. And he was like, from right off, he was like somebody who could make it sound like there were two guitar players in the band. He had a, a really versatile style. And he was um, actually in some ways more versatile than Wayne. Wayne was really a good guitar player. It was great. Speaking of Peter, uh, I know, I'm not sure if this is something you want to put out there but you had mentioned that you were uh jamming with peter oh yeah well no peter and i have been putting together material for a new divine horseman record oh, we're wow. going to record in a, in october uh of this year and peter and i've been working on new songs it's it's kind of difficult it's difficult because julie lives in nashville now but um we we started talking about doing this again last fall uh, originally, we were going to do some Divine Horseman gigs last year in the fall before we were going to do the Flesh Eaters tour in, in January. In the summer, right when we were going to start to rehearse our live set, we weren't going to work up any new material. We were just going to do stuff from the Divine Horseman records. Um, and Robin was very excited. He hadn't played music in quite a few years. Peter had still been playing music, but not live. He'd been, he, he's had like for several years, he's had a rehearsal space downtown uh, or a little bit east of downtown with another musician friend of his. And actually his friend, Bobby, 
Bobby Pollard is actually going to play bass with us on the Divine Horseman record. So they still have that rehearsal studio, and we've been rehearsing down there um, or working on songs, just Peter and I. But but last year when we were going to start, we were on the phone starting to discuss when we were going to get together, and I called Robin to start formulating a time frame when we were going to get together to rehearse. Um, and we were only going to do five or six shows in the fall. We were going to do a whole big thing. Right. But I couldn't get a return call from Robin in July. And I was going, wow, I wonder, this is so unlike Robin to not get back to me. And it was going on two or three weeks. I hadn't heard from him. And, um, and then I got a call in late July from his ex-girlfriend um, who was living in Chicago saying, hey, uh, I don't know if you know this, but Robin's in the hospital in a coma. Oh, wow. And, um, and I you know, asked her what happened, and she said, well, he, he and another guy were walking down the street near this homeless encampment, and they saw this totally crazy guy violently assaulting a woman, and they waited into the situation to try and pull the guy off the woman and the guy whirled around swinging a tire iron and hit Robin in the head with it and oh. put him into a coma. He went, you know, knocked him out. Um, and the, 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 his, uh, the friend that Robin was with and the woman got away with minor injuries, but the cops came and arrested the guy he was a parole violator. He was known for being a violent offender. But his his his, his ex uh, told me, um, you know, they, it, it doesn't look good. The doctors are not optimistic about him coming out of the coma. And I go, if you, hmm. if, she started saying, if you want to go see him, it'd be a good good time. And so we were like, we were freaked out. And and, and uh, Julie was in Nashville. She couldn't come out. But Peter and I went down to the hospital to see him. And he was he was in a coma. He was on a, um, you know, breathing machine. And um, That's awful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he, uh, considering getting hit in the face with a crowbar or a tire iron, whatever you want to call it, he... He didn't look to, I thought he was going to be disfigured or something, but he, 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 he just had a, a, a couple bruises on his, on the right side of his face. And, um, but the thing that was kind of deceptive, apparently before Ellen, his ex called me is that he had kind of out of the coma briefly a few days after the, the happening for about 20 minutes. But he was totally disoriented, and then he went. He fell back into the coma, and he'd been in the coma again for about a week. And um, the doctors were monitoring his brain activity and other vital signs. And it, more than one doctor chimed in with their opinion, and they really felt that he was not going to come out of it. He, he was going to be brain brain dead, basically. He came out of it, so um, he did come out of it. He'd be a vegetable. So Ellen and 
and his 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 uh, stepdaughter and, and stepson um, came into agreement to pull the plug, and I went. My, Johnny Ray, who was my drummer on the Flesh Eaters Ashes of Time album from 1999, which Robin was also on that album. Um, Robin really had played with me on so much stuff. He was all on all the Divine Horseman stuff. And uh, we went down there the day they pulled the plug. And then a few days, it takes you a few days to pass away when they do that usually. So he passed away a few days later. And so we, we, we just decided, Peter and Julie and I just said, we're not going to even try and do, you know, replace Robin right now. We're going to, we're going right. to postpone this. So, well, I'm terribly sorry to hear about Robin's passing. Yeah, I mean, it was so such a horrible thing because he was being totally selfless, not thinking of him, his own safety, and trying to trying to rescue somebody, and, and you know, yeah, paid the ultimate price for for doing so. It's a very kind of a selflessly heroic thing, which is pretty rare. Um, the stuff that we're doing now is we're we're going to actually redo this the song "Handful of Sand." We record it. Um, for this this new album because when that when that ep came out with handful of sand uh the band had already been broken up a couple months and um sst i i don't think they really promoted it which i can't blame them because there was there's no band to go on tour and New Rose when Peter and I were talking about this last night we still don't know if New Rose ever they were supposed to put out the handful of sand EP, um, the same record that, you know, SST put out. But uh, once the band broke up, I I kind of lost communication with their rose, and I don't even know if they ever put it out over there. They might have decided just to cut their losses after the band, the band broke up. So, because I've never seen a French copy of Handful of Sand. If anybody listening to the podcast can correct me on that if they've seen one or have one that's great i mean because you used to see new rose imports of uh snake handler and devil's river middle of the night you'd see those sometimes in used record bins over here and also patrick who was head of the new rose label would send me a few copies of each and I, I never got him for a handful of sand, and I, I never saw him turn up in America. So I'm kind of uh, doubtful that ever came out over there. So that song is one of our best songs, and, and it, it kind of got lost um, in the shuffle at the end. Um, so I'm not sure how many people really heard that song. But, you know, we had gone on tour twice in... 1987 we had gone on tour in the spring this is with peter as a guitar player and we had gone on tour in the fall we were promoting both times we're promoting snake handler that album that was the first album that sst put out on cd also they hadn't put middle of the night and devil's river out on cd uh New, new rose had put devil's river out on cd and they had included a lot of the middle of the night stuff on their Devil's River CD, which was great. Because if you have a 
if you have a copy of the Devil's River CD from France, you've you've got a really, you know, an over hour long compendium of of everything that's on Devil's River and most of the stuff that's on Middle of the Night. And um, it's hard to find that CD now. I've, I've luckily got a copy, but and actually, you know, for people who want to go on YouTube, it's up there on YouTube. Um, the whole, the whole CD. Um, so, so anyway, you know, we're we're going to go in and record the new album. Um, we're going to do it's about half originals and half covers, and we're going to be recording in October. It looks pretty good, like DJ Bonebreak from X and, you know, the Flesh Eaters uh, right. is going to play drums on the record. Oh, wow. And uh, we've, got, we've got a bass player also, Bobby. And so far, just Peter and I have been working on the stuff, but we're going to start bringing in Bobby in a few weeks. And then Julie's going to come out in July and August and... and, um, and DJ's probably going to be able to start rehearsing with us in July, so so I'm I'm very happy about that. Yeah, can't wait yeah. to hear that, Chris. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. I'd love to have you back on sometime to to talk about Flesh Eaters once we get get there. Oh sure, yeah, I'd love to. And and thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And um, you know, one thing I have to say is, you know, I was able to have other lineups of the Flesh Eaters after the Minute to Pray lineup and after the Forever Kid Today lineup and then after Divine Horseman split up because I was always the constant driving force behind the Flesh Eaters. And I had had a lot of different lineups already. Um, and I was able to have later iterations, incarnations of the Flesh Eaters. 1999 put out an album and yeah. 2004 the last one before the current. I used to be pretty record yeah. from the yep Rock. But Divine Horseman, neither Julie or I could really carry on the Divine Horseman name. We couldn't she couldn't do it without me and I couldn't do That's it without point. her. So Divine Horseman didn't really have have that same good fortune to be able to continue with other people unless Julie and I were both in it together. And you know, we started talking about doing some more stuff five or six years ago, but we didn't really bring it to fruition until now. So, so I'm I'm hoping that you know I'm I, I'm I have no illusions that you know there's going to be as much notoriety about it as with the flesh eaters, because the flesh eaters has got much more name recognition. But I'm hoping that people are going to you know. Uh, embrace what we do with the Divine Horsemen. So. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks so much for letting me digress all over the place. <laughs> all right. Pretty hard to top that, hey? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite interviews, man. Like I said, it, I just, I couldn't even think of which way I wanted to go. You know, like, I'm, I have such a respect for his body of work that I'm you know, like he's done so many things. He, he has a series of books on Japanese, cr uh, crime movies, you know, like he's done, he's just, he, he's made movies and we touched on it a little bit. So like his, his film career and, uh, you know, I mean, we've mentioned a few of his movies like border radio. I'm, I'm sure we've talked about a few times. 
he just acted in that one but yeah no we've definitely mentioned that one you know brent i don't know you i think you mentioned it last episode and maybe you're going to get into it um in a bit but it's it's really really interesting timing that I've got that new John Doe book and I'm reading it at the same time like the exact same week uh, like know. listening to the third right yeah I know man it's but you'll hear this in my interview with Julie next week so I'm doing the audio book of that I was gonna save it for a spiel next week and I'll, I'll do a more detailed spiel of it but a lot of that book talks about the root scene yeah that that started kind of after you know in conjunction with the hardcore scene. A lot of that first wave of LA punk rock people switched over to to Roots music. And I'm about halfway through the book and they have interviewed or or there are chapters by a who's who of of that scene. And I have not heard the Divine Horseman mentioned once. Yeah, I'm only two chapters in, so I got through uh uh what is it, Jane Wideland? Yeah. From from the Go Go's. And oh no, sorry, I'm three chapters in because I I read the um, the Dave Alvin chapter, Jane Widelin, and uh, what's what's that actor again? Tim. Uh, oh uh, yeah, I I can't remember what it was. It wasn't a good chapter. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of lame. Um, yeah, but neither of them mention it. Yeah. Whereas uh, Chris D, you know, brings up the blasters and a ton of bands, right? Yeah. From that scene. Well, he did get interviewed or did a chapter in the first one. I don't think he's in the yes. second one though, which is a shame. Yeah. He's got a lot more stories to tell for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to the spiel on the book next week. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, having said that I'm really enjoying, enjoying the book. I don't know. I don't really have much to add to the interview. I mean, it's it's a great interview. I love when he's talking about Keith Morris giving him the panic demo and stuff. How about how his label almost put out Black yeah. Flag's first LP? I know. I didn't. I didn't know that. I I may. Yeah. I feel like I might have read that somewhere, but I, you usually hear Bomp getting referenced. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that. Again, I may have read it too, but I guess it never sunk in yeah. until I heard Chris say it that way. I liked when he was talking about this band, the D.I.s. I'm like, I've heard of that band. It was short for uh, Drill Instructors. And I actually didn't know this band, but I looked them up. They have like a 12-inch EP. I was like, how do I know this band? And I know them from a skate rock comp, Skate Rock Volume 5, one of those Thrasher magazines compilations that came out in the 80s. They have a song on oh, yeah. there called Pray for Surf. And... It's Ron Emery, who was in TSOL, Johnny and Johnny Ray Bartell, who was in the Knitters and this band, the Red Devils, who uh, you want to talk about an insane history of a band. There was a big article in, the, in that classic rock magazine that I always have talked about uh, on the Red Devils. Their singer, unfortunately, um, I'm pretty sure died of a heroin overdose. And, uh, but they got signed to American Recordings by Rick Rubin. They were like this super hot LA like bar band. Got signed to American Recordings. Uh, ended up putting out like their debut album, their only album, uh, is a live album. And they actually like did an album with Mick Jagger that never came out as well. They're like a super hot blues band. What's the relationship with them and Drill Instructors? Johnny Ray Bartell was in Dr uh, the DIs and he was also in the Red Devils and I believe in the Knitters as well. 
Ah, okay, okay. But that album that they put out on uh, American Recordings, King King is the name of the album. It's just awesome. If you want like super hopped up blues with an amazing harmonica player, you need to check that album out. Oh, you know what I think of when I hear harmonica, Brent? What? <laughs> Honking on the bobo? You better believe it. Yeah. You had you had me at Bobo. <laughs> <laughs> well, that guy Lester something was his name, and he could really honk on the Bobo man. Well, do you want to yeah. get into uh, middle of the night? Yeah. All right. You know, I'm going to come clean right off the bat, and like I mentioned earlier on in the episode, this is I'm pretty much pretty much guaranteed that this is a Brandt album as opposed to a Ryan album. I'm a fan, but like, to be completely honest, when I first checked out the, the divine horseman, I was, I was probably pretty close minded in the sense that, you know, when I heard this, I was like, what is this? Is this like John Cougar Mellencamp or something <laughs> when that, when the record starts out yeah. and, um, you know, that's a long, long time ago when I heard this record and I never got rid of it. And I'm glad I kept it. And um, I've got even so I became a fan, not a big fan. I'm a big fan of the flesh eaters, like to be clear. But um, this week I became like a much bigger fan of the Divine Horseman. And it surprised me. It surprised yeah. me. I love it. But I'm a huge Stones fan. And they clearly were too. And I listen to a ton of country music, which I don't think you really do. Me? Yeah. Uh I have like some old classic stuff. None of that, none of that pop stuff. Yeah. Oh no, I'm not talking about that. But I like, know, I know. But I mean, like in terms of, like, I know that you and I, if we like any country, it would be the old stuff. And for me, there's not a ton of it that I'm. That no, I really... but I still like. You know, I have every Lucinda Williams album. I've got. You know, I what else? Like the Jayhawks. I have every Jayhawks album. All like the. Beachwood Sparks, all that stuff. I buy tons of new root stuff, you know? Neil Young, I buy, I, you know, I consider yeah. Bob Dylan. I buy all that stuff, you know? And this is, this definitely is the same thing to me. Well, let's go through the tracks. History lesson, part two. So side one starts with the track, Middle of the Night. So this is, as I said, this also came out, this EP also came out on New Rose and... <laughs> This is going to be really confusing. This is on, it's on the New Rose LP version of Devil's River. It's also on the New Rose CD version of Devil's River. It's also on the SST cassette version of Devil's River. But this EP also came out on New Rose. Are you following me? <laughs> yeah, so New Rose basically released the song Middle of the Night on... Yeah both albums yes did i follow along yes and sst released it on the devil's river cassette <laughs> <laughs> this one starts out with a total stone stones riff yeah and uh it's a killer track i like how julie starts the first verse and then chris starts the second verse which is like a really classic uh duet kind of a deal yeah it's got great lyrics Anything Christie has got a hand in, the lyrics are just killer. The guy's a true poet. And I was thinking about something you said a, a week or two ago. I think it was when we were talking about 
slovenly. You were talking about how Steven Anderson can sing, but he kind of makes his voice go in a more atonal way. Yeah. And I think you referenced John and Exene and how Exene does the same thing, even though she can hold a melody. She like does really well. Yeah, she she will sing her melody in a atonal, dissonant manner over top of John Doe's. That's not the case for these guys. No, it's reverse. Yeah. For me. Yeah. Chris D is doing that, and Julie Christensen is is singing the melody. And it works really well. Yeah. Uh, the second track, Field of Stone, is a cover by David Allen Coe. And so he is like a 70, like a true outlaw country dude. And I was, you know, myself, I was raised on this outlaw country stuff. My dad was big into Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Merle Haggard, uh, Linda Rodstadt, who, if you look her up, has actually quite a few connections to LA punk. Uh, but he wasn't a David Allen Coe fan. I know this song from uh, an album Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings did together uh, in the 70s, which my dad owned, called Take It to the Limit. And it's been covered many times. It was a number one hit for Tanya Tucker in the 70s. And Johnny Cash also covered it on one of his American recordings. That's where I know it from. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I kind of, like I was saying about country, I kind of rejected that stuff, you know, in my 20s and came back to it way later. You know, I listened to that stuff all the time. So, and, but I'm su not really familiar with David Allen Coe and I actually put the song into uh, the search bar of YouTube and there's a... Wait, wait a second, wait a second. Not SoundCloud? No, you're, think, you're thinking... You're not getting kickbacks from SoundCloud anymore? Spotify. Oh, Spotify, is that what it is? Okay, yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Some sort of streaming thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's actually really good, man. Like I maybe have not given David Allen Coe his due. I kind of, for whatever reason, just never really checked him out that much. And... Man, he does a version of this song that was really moving. I mean, he wrote it, right? But like, he plays it with a band and then goes a cappella at a at a certain point in the song, and it was it's live. This video I watched, and it was really good. And it, when he does it, it's actually the full name of the song is actually "Would You Lay with Me in a Field of Stone." Really pretty song, perfect for Chris and Julie to sing together. Um, this one has and and Desjardins on violin. And the next track is If Only I Could. And this is one of the demos that Chris mentions in the interview, um, kind of that they did between that first Divine Horseman album and this one that had John Doe and Matt Lee on guitars. This one is also on the New Rose CD version. It's a highlight for me. Love the lyrics, like, don't cross over to a savage kingdom where I can no longer follow, breathe that unbreathable air, drink the brimstone nectar of hell. <laughs> Great stuff. There's no other nectar. Yeah, it's a really good, really good track for me. And uh, he says in his book, this song is about uh, someone who he had a year and a half long relationship with. Uh, he says, someone who I should never have been in a relationship with in the first place. And it's about her. Uh, the track, the fourth track and last one on side one is called Little Sister. This is the electric version with the band, previously unavailable. That's what it says on the LP. There's another version of this on the Time Stand Still album. 
a different one. This is a rager, man. Yeah, total Stooges vibe going on here. A hundred percent. This one, yeah, this one is also from that demo session. Uh, it's on the New Rose CD. It stays true to the original version in the sense that Chris sings it solo. There's, I can't hear Julie on it at all. In his book, he says, it's about a married girl I had a great affection for with whom I had a brief tryst. <laughs> I, I also, in addition to the Stooges, I don't know if you heard this, um, and you're you're probably actually a big fan than I am, but I I heard some like Alice Cooper too. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, it's that Detroit sound, man. Both yeah. Detroit bands, right? Yeah. That's this is what I love about Christie. You can tell the guy's a hopeless romantic, and he's had a life well lived, and it's all there in his songs, you know. Oh yeah, he's definitely like exercising some demons, right? All right, flip it over. And we've got Mother's Worry. This is also the name of one of his novels, a really good one. The original version of this, although it's a different version, is on the Border Radio soundtrack. And if you want to hear more about that movie, I believe we discuss it. I don't know how much detail we go into, but episode 062, our Love Doll Superstar episode, is the one where we kind of run down all of the punk movies we can think about. Yes, that's right. Robocop 3. Good reminder. Also on the New Rose CD and the SST cassette, if you're following. Uh, the second track on side two is called It Doesn't Matter. Another highlight for me. Real awesome Stones riff again. It's a nice rocking song. Wayne James was definitely a Keefe disciple, I would say. You can hear it in all of his riffs and his leads too. And this is on the New Rose CD version and the SST cassette. Speaking of the Stones, the third track is Gimme Shelter, a cover of the Stones classic, which was on their 1969 album, Let It Bleed. It's perfect for Julie to sing. Um, she does a great um, rendition of the, the gospel-tinged vocal that, that Mary Clayton does on the original version. It's all around a very faithful version of the song, and I can guarantee you this song killed live. Yeah. 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 Well, especially since they did such a good job of it. Because I bet you there are a ton of people that are like, okay, guys, all right, let's do it. Let's play Gimme Shelter. And then they just suck at it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're like, this is, this is going to make us a legend in this town. And then they play it and it sucks. And you know that wouldn't have yeah. been the case for these guys. No. No, this would have been a showstopper, I bet. Yeah. This is on the, the CD version of, on the new rose cd as well they did a few stone songs too i can't remember which other one maybe like moonlight mile or something like that or they, like uh they could have done a ton of them yeah uh track four the final one is a cramps cover voodoo idol and that's off the cramps album Psycho psychedelic jungle that came out in 1981 and this is again from that demo session you can hear actually hear john doe singing on this one if you listen the uh, lyric at the end where he says, and what happened next to this day, no one can tell. It's totally John Doe. You got to listen really hard to hear John Doe and DJ Bonebreak on this one. Some really wicked slide guitar on this one. I, I have this album that this was recorded for, the New Rose 100, which is all covers. It's a double LP that came out on New Rose. Very similar to the Dead Kennedys, or the, sorry, the Alternative Tentacles 100, which was all Dead Kennedys tribute. Uh, cover songs. This one is 
There's a few Rocky Erickson ones, like Sky Saxon's on there doing Don't Slander Me. The Mad Daddies are on there Ooh, I like uh, doing the Cramp song. Yeah, they do New Kind of Kick. Yeah. Mad Daddies are yeah. total Cramps disciples. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's it, man. That's that's the EP. And, I, you know, I've been listening to this one and, and Devil's River back-to-back all week. Because I, I really think you can't talk about one without the other. And I I think they picked out, you know, kind of the best songs for this EP. Oh, really? Well, no, no I don't mean the best songs. I mean, the songs were well chosen. Oh. Which songs should be on, the, on this and which should be on Devil's River. I see. To make that kind of a standalone album. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, to make both of them standalone, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I hear you. Let's talk about the artwork well what strikes me about the cover on this one is it totally suits the music yeah it's a polaroid picture apparently which is why it's kind of grainy i'm assuming yeah i don't know much about cars but what you, any idea what kind of car that is that they're on the hood of mm, i don't know it could be like a plymouth or but uh yeah like chris and julie are sitting on the hood there probably you know Looking at the stars, it almost looks like yep. Chris in his right hand has got like a bottle in a paper bag. Oh yeah, good one. I bet he does. Yeah, and uh, they he's either wearing a leather or a jean jacket, like she's wearing a jean jacket, and he's got um, cowboy boots on, and it also looks like he's got those cowboy boots with like the metal tips on them, right? Nice. Yeah, that very much suits uh, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh yeah and then you got the palm trees yeah yeah it's the perfect yeah. shot for this record yeah and then the back of the cover looks uh much more sst-esque i guess you could say yeah yeah just the layout for sure uh the front cover is the polaroid right by phil grange and then the, yep. the back back cover is um it says back cover picks p-i- x ed culver because it really looks like it's a number of pictures that were kind of put together yeah it does yeah. it doesn't look like one single photo um but it has some uh, good good info on the back good credits there then lots of the details that chris goes through in the interview yeah one thing i didn't ask him was about was brett gerwitz recording some of these tracks yeah yeah there's um brett was like he had his was starting out kind of his studio right um in between the when like when bad religion took that hiatus and they they came back with suffer right he was like what the hell am i gonna do and he started up a studio he uh even some of the earth like there's a oh man i can't remember the name of the band there is a really really early release on epitaph and it's like a country album i can't remember its name though um mm -hmm. let me see if i can find it here while you're doing that, I'll just say that it says here, spiritual support from our new guitar player, Peter Andrus from Crowbar. Not the gnarly doom metal band Crowbar, though, I'm assuming. <laughs> what a letdown for you. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, gosh, I now feel like a bit of an idiot for not remembering the name. Um, the release on Epitaph, 1986 is spaghetti western that's the band that's 
Yeah, that's the name of the band. Did they? Do they just have the one album? Yeah, Spaghetti Western. So Brett, yeah. Brett was uh, he was recording a ton. Um, I want to hear that band, Spaghetti Western. They uh, they came out right between the uh, the Bad Religion back to the known twelve inch, and that's the one that has like Yesterday and Frogger when they really got melodic and uh, the song right. New Leaf, and you're like, okay, okay, these guys are getting melodic. Suffer makes a lot of sense when it comes out a few years later. It's uh, right between that and uh, Rich Kids on LSD record, Rock and Roll Nightmare. That's a good one. I know that album. Yeah. Do you know if there's any dead wax on this? Do you have it? I already checked. There is no dead wax. Oh, man. Well, what what about my version? Which is a, which is a shame because you, you got to think Chris D could have had some gold. What version do you have? I have the SST yeah, me, version. Yeah, me too. No dead wax. Mine is totally thrashed. It's, It's got like a hole punch in the corner. Everything's beat up on it, but it still plays and sounds great. Hmm. Yeah, mine's a cut. Mine's a cut out, but... All right, ballot result. Ballot result. So you got to pick this one, obviously, but I, I will just very briefly throw my hat in the ring for Little Sister. That's my favorite track. Hmm. Well, if I get to pick, I am not going to pick Little Sister, although I like it. <laughs> just to spite me. Just to spite me. I know it. I know it. I really like It Doesn't Matter. Uh, I really like If Only I Could, but I'm going to go with the title track. Middle of the Night? Yep. Yeah, I mean, if hey, if you're going to put a Divine Horseman track on a compilation, pretty hard to beat that one. It's not my favorite song, though. It's got a great chorus. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it really it really sticks in your head. Great opening riff. Yeah. Hey, Ryan. Yes, man. What's next week? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's SST91, the Divine Horseman. Can I say it's an LP now? It's an LP. Yeah, it's a full-length. Full-length LP, Devil's River, and we've got Julie on, which is great. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a great interview. So if you like Chris D, tune in for part two next week. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.